Acts 22, 1 through 22. If you remember from last week, Paul has uh, gone to Jerusalem to deliver the offering that he's gathered from the Gentile church, and he's brought it to uh, the Jerusalem church, handed it to James and, and the, the brothers, the elders there, and there was a controversy as to how Paul should be handling this because there were some many Jews who had come to Christ but were zealous for the law. And so Paul entered into an agreement that he would uh, enter into a Nazarite vow and do some, uh, do some sacrifices uh, to appease the Jews. And uh, what turned out as a peacekeeping activity turned into total chaos. And now Paul has been rescued by the Romans and brought into the barracks. And Paul wanted to appeal to his brothers, fathers and brothers about what really is going on. So that's a little bit of the context. So follow along with me. Starting at verse 40 of chapter 21. And when he was given permission, Paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, brothers, and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became, became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia and brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are, are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and, and saw him. And he said, the Lord or the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be witnesses for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Upon, up to this word, they would listen to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he shall not be allowed to live. This is the word of the Lord. wish that you had some amazing dramatic kind of testimony like when you share your testimony people are just like awestruck and they watch every word and action that you, you as you share your story maybe there's even tears as they they hear your story of how God has taken your life and transformed it maybe you've you've lived a life of drugs and le- life of total debauchery just out of control and people listen to your story maybe you were a murderer at one time and you were killed you know involved in drug activity gang activity and people are listening to your life about how god rescued you took you out of these depths and this darkness and brought you to this amazing life have you ever wished you had that kind of a testimony or just thought, man, if I had a testimony like that, I could lead all kinds of people to Christ. But maybe you're like me. You grew up in the church. How many people would say that's true? You grew up in the church. Welcome. You grew up in the church, and honestly, your, your testimony isn't all that dramatic. Maybe you have some bumps in the road. Maybe you had a little bit of high school kind of rebellion like we all have. Or maybe you you went through a time where your family has gone through divorce. Or maybe you had the really rough relationship with this guy or this girl and it didn't really work out. But really, your, your testimony is vanilla. It's really plain. Well, whenever I've heard people explain about how to share your testimony on Uh, It it always follows this kind of three-point outline. First, tell your life before you met Christ. What was your life like before Christ? And then it's always how you met Christ. And then your life since you've met Christ. Those three points. I've always been trained, you know. What was your life like before Jesus? And how did you meet Jesus? And then what's your life been like after that point? The problem is, And maybe it's true with you. I can't remember much of my life before Christ. It's kind of like the color blue. How many of you remember the day where you knew the color blue? You've always kind of known the color blue. It's been kind of my life with Christ. Sure, everybody kind of goes through their their troubles. Maybe you, you've had the terrible twos. You know, we've all had terrible twos, but we discover there's really no such thing as terrible twos. We had terrible threes, and the threes were just awful. I'm sure I, I dirtied my fair share of diapers, and I'm sure my parents were just really upset with that, that phase of my life. But I grew up in the church my entire life, twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday. Christ was pretty much like a friend and neighbor that I knew and I depended on my entire life. But I do remember 
in spite of my really good family upbringing, despite that, I remember there were points in my high school life where I was, I enjoyed a drink called Purple Passion. Grain, alcohol, tasting like Kool-Aid. And just a rebellious. Bartles and James, back in the days of Bartles and James, walking around below the dam in Pella, Iowa. It was a life of rebellion. Most of you just go, serious? That's, that's, that's the extent of your rebellion? Yeah, that was, that was about it. Staying out too late, sneaking in the house. In college, I also went through my, my brief period of rebellion, of just found my freedom from underneath, you know, my parents' oppression and living in a small town where everybody's watching everything and going to the city and finally being able to experience life as unrepressed as possible. But despite my upbringing and my little bumps, it wasn't until 1989 where at Camp Manitoba as a counselor, I, I fully understood the grace of God that's been poured out on me. And it was after that that I professed my faith in Jesus Christ before the elders of the church and began to really grow in my faith as it was my own. But at what point was I saved? What point was I saved? And honestly, I don't know. Was it at the age three? Was it in grade school? Was it in college? Only God really knows. All I know is it's not a very dramatic story. But God has shown me over the years that my heart is just as corrupt as the hearts of the most wicked people on earth. My heart is just as corrupt, just as broken. And I've also learned that it takes the same mighty power of God to save an outwardly good person as it does to save an outwardly evil person. The same power of God. And that outwardly good person needs salvation every bit as much as the notorious sinner. Our text relates that Paul's testimony to the angry mob of Jews in Jerusalem was who were in the process of just absolutely wanting to beat him to death and tear him apart. And it's the second time of three times the stories of Paul's conversion is told in the book of Acts. Three times. And perhaps second only to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul's conversion stands as an impressive testimony of the truth of the gospel. How can you explain the sudden turnaround of a man who is breathing out murderous threats against the church and turning him into an apostle who relentlessly preached the gospel in spite of the face of death? The Spirit of God saw fit to include this testimony three times in the book of Acts so that we can learn it for us today. So here's our theme we're going to learn that Paul's testimony teaches us how God works mightily, mightily to save sinners like you and me. The reality is if I had, had faced an angry mob like Paul did and who was trying to, trying to kill me, rip me limb from limb, and I got rescued from Romans or the, the police of New Lenox, I got taken out of that situation, I don't think the first thought of my mind would be, man, I'd really like to share the gospel with these folks. In fact, the, the thing on my mind would be, 
I'm out of here. I am safe. Get me to the next county. Get me to the next state. Get me out of here because my life is safe. But Paul, Paul had the presence of mind to ask permission of the Roman commander to address the crowd that just got done attacking him. They hadn't even had an hour or two probably to calm down. They were still outside the barracks wanting to tear this man limb from limb. And Paul's begging the commander, listen, I need to go share the gospel with these people. He was granted that permission and he addressed the crowd in their, their native Aramaic language and identified himself as a fellow Jew. And his address falls into three parts. His life before his conversion his experience of his conversion, and then his commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But when he uttered that, that despicable, despised word, Gentiles, the crowd went ballistic. They went nuts again and calling for his death. And he was not able to finish his testimony. So his testimony here teaches us at least five things. The first is, Paul's testimony teaches us that being zealous, being zealously religious does not reconcile us or make us right with God. Just because you are zealously religious does not make you right with God. From his youth, Paul was zealous for God. He was zealous. He, he had a Jewish pedigree that everybody wished that they had. He was born in Tarsus, which is in southern Asia Minor. He grew up in, the, in Jerusalem where he was tutored by the all-famous Gamaliel, this amazing rabbi that everybody knew. And as a Pharisee, Paul was trained according to the strictest law of his forefathers. The strictest law. His zeal to preserve the ancient traditions led him to the point of wanting to persecute to the death anyone who belonged to the way, the church. He was zealous. He went so far as to lead them to death, imprison men and women. And he was hungry for this. There was a bloodlust against the church. But it wasn't until he had a walk to Damascus on his way to persecute the church where he had an experience, where God struck him down with a blinding light from heaven. Paul attributes this mob going nuts to the fact that they had a zeal for God. They thought that they were defending the Jewish temple against the defilement from the Gentiles and defending the Jewish people from their and their sacred laws from this renegade Paul who had gone off course. But all this re religious zeal on the part of Paul and his audience could not reconcile either them to God or anyone else to God. In fact, it was this very zeal that led the nation of Israel to crucify Christ. Zeal. Here, religious zeal was motivating these same Jews to attempt to kill the messenger who was trying to share the way of salvation. I think about the religious right 
the conservatives, the highly conservative folks in our, our day and age who are zealous for the law, zealous for scripture. And we, we talk about, man, we got to live this way and that way. And we got to go against these people and those people because they're, they're just defiling God's name and not glorifying. And there's a zealousness. And we've got to be careful with our zeal because we've even seen down through the centuries to even modern day, religious zeal is behind much of the violence in our world. You see the Crusades, the Inquisition, wars to conquer northern Africa and their incursions into Europe, modern day Islamic terror and terrorism in northern Ireland all stem from what? Religious zeal. You'll even see the killing of young men and young women who struggle with same-sex identity by religious, killing them by religious folks because of what? Zeal. A zeal for God. Paul's testimony makes it plain that you can be zealous for God and yet be horribly mistaken. Horribly mistaken. You can be zealous for God and actually be fighting against God. All the religious zeal in the world could not reconcile your soul to God. Usually, as the case of Paul and these Jews, our religious zeal is just a cover-up for pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice, which are sins. No amount of religious zeal can atone for sin. So religious zeal, we have to watch out for Paul's testimony also teaches us, secondly, that salvation is by God's grace and power and not by our own merit or our own will. Paul was not considering in his early years the claims of Christ as he marched to Damascus. That was not his goal. He was on his way to persecute the church. He was not rereading the Bible in light of the life and death and resurrection of this, of this Christ to see if the ancient prophecies were actually true about Jesus as Israel's Messiah. He was not unhappy about his life in Jerusalem. He wasn't searching for another way. Rather, he was militantly defending the Jewish faith, seeking to rid the blight of those heretics. It was as he pursued this course of action with vengeance that God literally stopped Paul in his God's power knocked Paul to the ground and blinded him. Then God gave very specific orders about what Paul was going to be doing next. Everything about Paul's conversion came from God. It had nothing to do with Paul's will, nothing to do with Paul's merit. It had everything to do with God's will. Nothing stemmed from Paul. God didn't look down and see some merit in Paul that qualified him to come to salvation. Quite to the contrary, Paul confessed that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel. And twice Jesus emphasizes that by persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus himself. And for this, Paul deserved God's judgment. But what did God do? God showed mercy. God didn't say, man, Paul, I'd, I'd really like to, you to be my, my chief apostle, but I'm not going to force your will here. I'm not going to twist your arm here. You have to 
exercise your free will to choose me. There's many who, who reason that God chose Paul or that who would say that he chooses anyone is that the way that God does it is that he foresees into the future that the person will one day choose to follow him. But to say this is to base God's sovereign election on fallen humanity. Ignoring the plain biblical truth that unless God first does the work of grace in our hearts, no one, no one would ever choose him. It's impossible. John 6, 44 says, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. John 6, 65 says, no one is able to come to Jesus unless it's granted to him from the Father. Luke 10, 22 says, no one who the Father, uh, no one knows who the Father is except through the Son and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal to him. In several places, Paul attributes the first cause of our salvation to God's choice of us. God choosing us, not a choice of our own. In Galatians 1.15, he says that God set him apart even in his mother's womb and called him through his grace. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of glory of his grace, of which he freely bestowed on us in his beloved. In 1 Timothy 1, 9, he says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus before all eternity. And there's many more verses. If we deny God's sovereign call and God's sovereign election, we rob him of the glory and attribute at least part of the cause of our salvation to something in us. God does the deep work of calling and changing, regenerating our hearts. If God chose us, if God's choice of us depends on what he foresaw that we would do, then we would have grounds for boasting. We would have grounds for boasting. Either in our will, and our brilliant minds that caused us to see the truth, or, or in our faith, which God saw that we would exercise our salvation would be our own brilliance, our own work. But salvation is a gift from God, not something that we can do on our own. If our salvation rests not on our will or our effort, but only on God who shows mercy, then he should get all the praise and he should get all the glory. And if God's grace and power are mighty enough to save a sinner like Paul, then he's mighty enough to save any sinner and able to do it instantly, in a second, and to do it completely. His life can blind and knock down the most insolent, proud, powerful persecutor of the church. God's able to do that. You may have had some terrible sins in your life, some terrible issues in your past, 
You might even be militantly opposed to Christianity, convinced by all your arguments that it is just a myth. It's just a, something to make you feel good as you go through tough times. But the risen Lord is mighty to save you, even you. He can open your eyes to give you a glimpse of his glory and his grace and you will never be the same again. Paul's testimony teaches us that you can be zealous, be religiously zealous. And that doesn't reconcile you and even your, your salvation. Your salvation is totally dependent on God and his purposes, not by anything else. But his testimony also teaches us that God often must humble us before he extends his, his mercy towards us. Moments before it happened, Paul was picturing himself striding confidently, powerfully into Damascus with his henchmen around him, waving, waving to his admirers while the Christians fled in terror. They were scurrying about like cockroaches, trying to hide. Instead, what happened? He is blindly led into Damascus by the hand of another. Completely submissive to God's will, to God's command. And as a Pharisee, Paul was proud of his spiritual insight. He had the best training possible. And he had tremendous spiritual insight. And God had to blind him so that he could begin to rightly see. And before the Damascus road, Paul would have said, I see, I know the truth. But now, blind and led by the hand, he had to admit that what he thought he was before, he no longer saw. And what he had never seen before, the glory of the risen Christ, he now saw in all of his glory. Now here's the reality. I don't think I know any of you in here who have had a Damascus Road experience. I, I've never heard anybody say, man, I, I was on my way to explode a church and... Uh, God met me on the way to New Lenox, blinding light. And I had this face-to-face -face kind of experience with Jesus. God does not always humble us to the degree that he humbled Paul before he was converted. It's just not, it, that, that doesn't happen. These are extraordinary circumstances. But if at some time we have not been humbled before God's majesty, it shows that we barely know him. One of the most profound books that I read on my own while I was in seminary was um, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. If you got some spare time, it's a nice thick tome, um, but it is quality. Uh, it's profound because what, what John Calvin does is he exalts God and humbles us before him. He just, he exalts, he makes much about God and, and we, we have to point our eyes upward to him. Consider these words that, that are found in the, the second section of his opening chapter. This is what he says. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself 
unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate, innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which the judgment must be measured. He goes on to point out how Scripture often shows men as stricken and overcome by God's presence. As they glimpse God's presence, they are just absolutely overcome and humbled. And in fact, when they, when they hear that God is even in their presence, what happens? They're, they're laid prostrate on the ground. They, they dare not lift up their eyes because if they do, they are just obliterated by God's holiness. Even though these men were normally stable, let them get a glimpse of the glory of God and they are laid low, almost annihilated. And then John Calvin goes on to say, as a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. The majestic nature of God. When much later... Calvin develops the doctrine that he is most famous for, predestination, which is some of you start to twitch when you hear the, that very word, predestination. He emphasizes that the ignorance of it detracts from God's glory and takes away from true humility. Such humble submission to God is a mark of true conversion. When you submit to God and are humbled by his very presence, that's a mark of true conversion. Paul's two questions that he asked God here are, are good ones to ask every time you approach him through his word. Who are you, Lord? Who, who are you? As we read through scripture, you read through various, through the Psalms, through Exodus, through Revelation. Who are you, Lord? And what shall I do, Lord? To say, as some do, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but I haven't yielded to him as Lord is absolute nonsense before God. If he gives you a brief glimpse of his power and his glory, you will be laying prostrate like Paul and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? In light of who you are and what you have done for me and to me and through me, Lord, what do you want me to do? to do. Fourth, Paul's testimony teaches us that baptism or profession of faith is an important confession of our faith in Christ. No sooner than Paul received his sight through Ananias' ministry than he was quickly encouraged or exhorted to say, now why, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Giddy up. Some interpret this to mean that water baptism washes away sin, which we, we know just is not true. 1 Peter 3.21, 
in our men's ministry, we walked through this whole section uh, of Scripture, and it was a, a rousing discussion of what does this really mean. It states that baptism saves you. But then Peter clarifies what he means. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Quite often what scripture does is it closely associates the act of baptism with what the act symbolizes. They're almost married together. Baptism in water pictures what God has already done in a person's heart through faith that he has washed away their sins. Acts twenty-two sixteen. Paul has already called upon the Lord at which point God has washed away his sins. It's done. The act of baptism in obedience to God's command would be a graphic picture and a source of assurance to Paul of the cleansing that would come to him the moment that he trusted in Christ. But don't miss the application. The application is this. If God has cleansed your sins by faith, then why delay confessing that truth by being baptized. Why delay? The idea of an unbaptized believer would have been foreign, unthinkable to the apostles. It should be foreign to us as well. If you have been baptized as a child and have yet to profess your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, come to the elders publicly profess your faith before the church and be welcomed into the full communion of this body. If you have never been baptized ever and desire to be baptized as a declaration of your faith in Christ, again, come to the elders, profess your faith and be baptized. Lastly, Paul's testimony teaches us that God saves us for His purposes, not our agenda. It's for God's purpose. That's why He saves us. This lesson is re repeated twice, so, so don't miss it. First, the Lord tells Paul that in Damascus, He would be told all that is appointed for you to do. And then Ananias tells Paul, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will. And to see the righteous one and to hear the voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to, to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. The first, the first word translated appointed is a military word. Meaning to give orders or to give a command. The second word that Ananias uses is to take into one's hand. And thus to determine or to choose. Neither word gives us a lot of free will concerning Paul and his future. God had determined how Paul would serve him. God determined how Paul would serve him. He, God had an agenda for Paul. And that agenda did not coincide with what Paul initially wanted to do. God had an agenda for Paul. And the same is true for us. God has an agenda and a purpose for us. 
Paul wanted to stay in Jerusalem. And Paul wanted to witness to his fellow Jews. And, he, and when he returned to Jerusalem after his three years in Arabia, he, he was in the temple and he was praying. And he suddenly had an, a vision of Jesus telling him, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of here. Because what I want, these people are not going to respond to the gospel. I want you to go to the Gentiles. Paul protested that his background would make him an excellent witness to the Jews, but the Lord overruled and sent him to the Gentiles. And when Paul mentions this to the crowd that was just breathing murderous threats as he once was, they went into a frenzy. Note that Paul's audience reacted emotionally to the message emotionally. They were not thinking rationally at this point. At any, at any time, people react emotionally. When they react emotionally to the gospel, they should calm down and ask themselves, why am I responding in this way? Paul didn't get a chance here to, to get, to be able to explain rationally. And often, if you're witnessing to someone who, who reacts emotionally, don't get drawn into his or her response by getting yourself emotional as well. Rather, try to get this person to calm down and examine their reaction. In this case, it was pride and prejudice that blinded the people from thinking calmly and rationally about the claims of the gospel. They are facts. The gospel is facts. The gospel is facts. Secondly, we, we need to note that God's will for us does not always coincide for our will. See, God wants the message of his salvation to go into all the nations on the entire earth. That is God's will and his purpose. And while we aren't all called to be missionaries, in fact, I don't think I know anybody who is right now called a missionary to go overseas into a other third world country, even second world country. We're, we are all called to live in ways that are not selfishly for ourselves while the nations perish in darkness. If like the Jews of Paul's day, we begin to grow uncomfortable about being God's chosen people and ignore his purpose of reaching the lost then we're missing God's purpose for our life. If we grow comfortable meeting Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, 52 times in a row, sitting in these pews, and we grow comfortable about being God's called people here in New Lenox and from wherever you come from and sitting here and just feeling warm and comfortable and forget that there are people perishing, there is a problem. There's a problem with our hearts. And we need to be able to ask, how does God want me to fit into this purpose of being glorified among the nations? What is my role as a member, as an attender of this church? What is my role week in and week out? How do I see that God is glorified in the nations? Is it just by sitting back and showing up and 
giving a head nod to God, a high five, holy high five? Or are we praying for lost people? Are we financially supporting the mission and the vision of the church? Some years ago in the church in England, uh, a pastor, it's told, noticed that a, a former burglar was kneeling at the communion rail beside the judge of the Supreme Court in England. And the very judge who years before had sentenced the burglar to seven years in prison. And after his release, the burglar had been converted to Christ and become a Christian worker. And after the service, as a judge and the pastor walked home together, the judge asked this, Did you see who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail? Yes, replied the pastor. But I didn't know that you noticed. The two men walked on in silence for a few moments, and then the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes. What a marvelous miracle of grace. Then the judge said sometime later, but to whom do you refer? And the pastor replied, why, to the conversion of that, that convict. And the judge said, but I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. What do you mean, the pastor asked. And the judge replied, this. That burglar knew how much he needed Christ to save him from his sins. But look at me. I was taught from childhood to live as a gentleman. Sound like some of us? To keep my word, to say my prayers, to go to church. I went through Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. Pastor, nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit that I was a sinner on a level with that burglar. It took, much, it took much more grace to forgive me for all my pride and self-righteousness, to get me to admit that I was no better in the eyes of God than that convict whom I sent to prison. The question is, do you have a testimony to share? Do you have a testimony to share of, of God's mighty power saving you? If you are in Christ, the answer is yes. You do. And you don't need a public forum in Jerusalem to stand before a seething mob of angry Jews to share it. The testimony of God's grace through Christ working in you is a gift. A gift to be shared with whomever you come in contact with. The neighbor next door? The bus stop with your kids? Your child at night? The barista? the people that you are coming to know, and even, yes, with this family here. A 
sharing the testimony of God's grace through Christ and how he has worked in you is a story that must be shared. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you of how your, your grace works in powerful ways to save sinners like me. How you have saved me from my own self-righteousness, my own pride, my own numbness. And you work powerfully to save me. God, I know that there are stories throughout this how you have saved them. But God, I also know that there, there may be a man, a woman, a child this morning who has yet to respond to your grace. That maybe their eyes this morning have been opened up to the, for the first time to the glory of Christ, realizing that you have provided a way through Christ Jesus. Come to terms with the, the weight of our sin and our hopelessness. We might be religiously zealous for you, but so far away from you. God, I pray that you would continue to open those eyes, that their heart would respond in joy, in submission to you, and say, yes, Lord. What is it that you're calling me to do? God, I pray for those outside of this building this morning who are yet to respond to your grace. God, would you provide constant opportunities? Would you be relentless in providing opportunities for us to share our testimony? of how you have saved us. God, I pray that we would see many come to Christ because of your sovereign power to save sinners like us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.